Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 209th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's always wired into the latest scandal. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, James. Good evening, everybody. How are you on uh, on this rainy night? All good in the hood. Busy, busy. Starting to see a little uptick in uh, modern card sales through my various channels. That's uh, encouraging for those who believe in that format as a source of solid MTG finance. The format certainly looks fun. Um, the results out of, uh, what is it, Reno, I believe, were the side events of Reno or something were pretty fun looking. If, uh, unfortunately I think Pioneer is just going to keep stealing that thunder. Well, we have a big block of modern tournaments coming up now with, without very many major intervening pioneer tournaments. Although there are some SEG trios, uh, events along the way that have some of both. Um, so I suspect if modern's going to do anything this year of note, it's, this is the big chance. Um, We've been talking in our Discord about how the combination of a bunch of big modern events uh, plus uh, us being in the heading into the tax refund season tends to mean that March, April, May is the hottest portion of MTG Finance of the year. So I want to see how many modern cards end up on our big movers list over the next 12 weeks or so, and then we'll have a better sense of it. Sure. Maybe it'll have a little bit more traction than I am anticipating. Um, but I suppose this will be the best time period we've had for, for modern since Pioneer was announced, God, what, five months ago now. Now, now of course, there is a potential for the coronavirus to get in the way because we've already had the Lyon event canceled, I believe, um, if I'm not mistaken. That is the one from this was supposed to be this coming weekend, and it was going to be a standard event. Um, so that throws a little interference into the mix. And the coming events uh, beyond that are March 13th is a standard uh, Magic Fest in Detroit. We have a modern one in Sao Paulo, so it'd be worth watching to see if that one uh, goes off or not. And then Turin. Oh, sorry, I guess it, I don't think it was Lyon. That's standard this coming weekend. It's Turin in italy april 3rd that was canceled which is a modern event so one of the major modern events was wiped off the map um mm. so sao paulo on sao paulo on march 20th is also a modern event and then we have palm beach florida april 10th so worth watching to make sure that the those two still uh, go off as planned yeah that's uh i mean could probably kink both of these right um, or like the entire modern season here there, I mean, and I'm sure a lot, most of our listeners are probably mostly aware, but there's talk of canceling the Olympics, uh, GDC game developers conference was 
was canceled or a lot of people are dropping out from it. Um, a lot of pretty major events are... South by Southwest had a bunch of announcements. Did that get canceled as well? Or not, cancellation, I don't know so. if it's canceled yet, but there are major entities that would normally be present for that that have pulled out. So it could get pushed in that direction. Um, um, and the, the businesses in America, by the way, are also starting to tell people to work from home. Um, I know that uh, a, a, at least a couple people I know who work in the States if their jobs are capable of being done remote have been told that they to be prepared that that's going to happen to that they're going to work from home for like three months and one of the things that's, that could be highly problematic here uh if this trend line continues is that i'm not so much worried about the magic fest not going off well that could certainly hurt uh, cfb events bottom line um and uh decrease the total um card sales that uh, we might card sales uh price pushes related to people prepping for those events could be affected but it's uh, i'm more concerned with what happens to your local lgs if it becomes untenable to be if people stop showing up for like fnm nights because the cash on hand, like the runway of your average LGS is going to be a lot less than most small business, a lot of other small businesses. And I'm not sure how many of them could survive if people, if F&M just collapsed for eight to 12 weeks. Uh, yeah, I don't expect that it would crush most. I, I don't expect most LGSs to have their business fall out from under them simply because I would guess a lot of people, a lot of nerds are going to be like, well, you know, I'm working from home. You know, the major, major events are canceled, but the 20 people that show up at my FNM are fine. Like it might feel small enough that they're not that worried about it type of thing. Entirely, um, entirely possible. Yeah. Unless it gets, but that depends on like the level of, fervor and fear that is going around because if the if the fear gets high enough that would change that yeah i mean i i still went out to face-to-face games toronto last weekend and hung out for a while um yeah no i I don't have reason not to yet but it's worth watching as time goes on because you know the the market is tanking hard in anticipation of economic ripples from uh this virus and this is one of the cases where the that that macro impact of that that trend could easily reach into the magic economy and and make a similar impact. Right. Yep. All right. So, uh, what else is on the agenda today? Uh. Well, uh, first thing on the agenda is that I'm glad to be here and looking forward to sharing some valuable information. Our show is produced by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to Track your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MDG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. And then I'm guessing we have the usual four segments. Uh, indeed. Uh, now I'm free to reveal them to you. Segment one, our top movers. We'll talk about the cards that have moved the most in price this week. Segment two, our cards to watch. We'll run through some of the cards that we think have a positive outlook. Uh, segment three, our metagame week in review. We've got the 
uh, Reno Modern PTQs, uh, as well as a Modern League. So a little bit of Modern this week in anticipation of all those Modern bigger events uh, in the pipeline, supposedly, pre-corona. And finally, segment four, topic of the week, we're going to check in on two different topics. One is a Wired article, uh, soon, you know, to be assumed to be hitting newsstands near you at some point in the foreseeable future. Um, and second, a uh, secret layer check-in. Uh, Saffron over at Goldfish posted an article this week about whether it's worth it to buy a secret layer, and we felt that we should chime in. So let's get started here. Segment one, our top movers of the week. Uh, kicking us off is Grinding Station out of Fifth Dawn. This is exploded as a result of the modern uh, Underworld Breach deck uh, going from eight and change up to 18. So uh, a nice little double up there. Yep. One that I believe you said was really selling through. So uh, a solid double up. Yeah, I, I bought a bunch of Grinding Stations. I think the first time that it became clear it might be an urza component for modern uh and so i think probably like early last summer and was picking up grinding stations in the like three or four dollar range and foils under ten like eight nine ten dollars a piece um from a variety of sources and had a bunch of those on hand some of which sold at the time decently and then i'd been sitting on them for the last eight months or so and they've been just flying off the shelves this week. Easily one of my top sellers, getting $30 a piece for the foils uh, pretty handily and getting 10 to 12 on the non-foils. Um, the Breach deck looks super duper busted in Modern. Uh, we've got a ban announcement that has been tabled for next Monday. I think it's March 9th, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so there is now rampant speculation about what's going to be included there. I could easily see... Uh, breach in the other world something related to it being targeted not sure if it's the card itself or if they want to pull the usual shenanigans and go after one of the pieces that works with it so something like a grinding station could maybe be the target if they want to shut down the deck yeah i, I like just uh, underworld breach seems like the card you're supposed to target here if you're banning it in modern because it's clear that that card doesn't do anything fair whatsoever. Uh, it's only ever going to exist in the totally broken or totally useless realms. Um, and if it's, if you ban something that's not Underworld Breach right now, it will probably come back to the forefront eventually. I, this is a, a good segue into commenting that I just, I, I can't comprehend at this point why they're giving us the weak not- heads up notification about this. <laughs> Like, oh, hey, guys, in a week, we're going to ban something. Okay. For the next week, what the hell do we do? Like, no one wants to, like, like, it's just going to lead to all sorts of rampant speculation and rumors and people taking guesses to what's going to happen. Ultimately, whatever does happen will be so different than what the community has decided should happen in that week that people are just going to be pissed no matter what. Uh, like just what, and the the bigger point is what purpose does it serve? What have you accomplished by giving people a weak heads up? Like they don't, they can't, 
get out of their cards that are getting banned safely because they don't know what's getting banned. So now people are in the untenable position like, great, am I supposed to solve these inverter of truths? Like, is this card getting banned? Am I supposed to get rid of these? Or am I supposed to just hold on to them and hope it doesn't get banned, but then feel bad when it does get banned? But okay, but if I sell them and it doesn't get banned, the price will probably go up. So I have to rebuy for more than I spent. Like, it just seems like it's bad for people who own cards that they're worried might get banned. It doesn't help anyone who doesn't own cards because if I'm thinking about buying inverter, I'm just going to wait until next week to buy, right? Like I'm not going to make a decision now. If you're talking about dealers, like maybe you might say, okay, tech, maybe the announcement's for vendors. Okay, well, if I'm a vendor and I'm looking at this, this I'm going, okay, I've got eight cards that are viable band targets that I have buy lists up for right now. Am I supposed to turn all those buy lists off for the next week? Like, is that, is it easier for a vendor to try and guess which buy list cards, which cards to turn off their buy list for a week than it is to just wait until Monday morning, see the announcement and then pull up their inventory and quickly pull, turn that buy list off and like change your inventory. I just, I can't figure out who this is supposed to be benefiting. Aaron's Forsyth put out the following tweet yesterday at 6.04 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm happy we're giving one week's notice before B&R changes. I like the flexibility of not having set dates, but I don't like people living in suspense every single Monday. Hopefully this works for everyone. I responded about five minutes later. The thing is, when the targets are clear, or folks just think they are, this isn't much different from just banning a week earlier. Still a rush for the exit doors, only with less info. Definitely not ideal. Constant access to magic online data for all might be better. And my implication there was that Wizards has made it pretty clear that they get a lot of their stats from magic online um, in terms of trying to figure out whether certain cards and strategies are too dominant and need to be dealt with, addressed via bans. And at the same time, they've been withdrawing over the last few years the amount of data that can be gleaned from Magic Online. Like Magic Gold, MTG Goldfish was told to um, get rid of their like win percentage calculations or something at one point, if I'm not mistaken. It was a, it was a matchup calculation, so you sure. could see how good every deck was against every other deck in the format. Right. And they recently announced that Frank Karsten couldn't uh, <laughs> like stat smash uh results from major events um fart cranston <laughs> uh so that you know people would have even less access to this kind of information and while i do actually believe that the overall impact of less information could be at least at a local level a more diverse meta um i don't think it does ultimately i think that the solution is to build balanced formats not to hide data like, yeah. they, they knew that cards like Oko and Underworld Breach were pushed. This whole year's worth of releases is going to have a bunch of pushed cards. We're coming up on Ikoria. I guarantee you we're going to get some broken stuff there. We're going to get some broken stuff in the core set. We're going to get some broken stuff in Zendikar. And then beyond that, we finally get into an era where maybe they are trying to, they are trying to learn from earlier mistakes. And maybe they dial it back a bit. But, like... Every booster box from this year period from like Eldraine forward is going to have banned cards in it going forward, which hurts the ability to sell boxes and packs because people have this the feel bad of opening a card you can't play anywhere. And the thing is that a lot of these cards weren't, weren't even just single format bans. It's one thing if your card gets banned in standard but nowhere else and you can still play it in the older formats. It's quite another if you get Okos or uh, Breaches and they're banned in multiple major formats and just unwelcome in, in anywhere, even if it's not banned. Like, just because Oko, like, some card is not banned in Commander, 
does not mean that people want you playing it against them. You can still publish a card that is technically legal, but that no one is happy to see at the table. The, the, the whole thing is just confusing, honestly. Um, well, and I, and I think it directly undermines the ability to sell singles. I'll give you a perfect anecdote, and I'm sure any vendor listening can relate. I was talking to a guy today that I sold like $450 in cards to, but they were misprints. They had nothing to do with uh building a specific deck and i always ask when i'm making a a major sale is there anything else you're looking for and they said yeah i'm looking for some stuff i'm looking to get into pioneer i'm going to start figuring out my deck i'll give you a list well two hours later he gets back to me and goes ah you know what let me wait until after the ban announcement makes sense for him i mean Mm -hmm. why commit to inverter or whatever else he was thinking about if he doesn't know whether it's going to be banned next week and right and so you know, Aaron's perspective that this is better for everyone is clearly false. It might help major vendors to manicure, manicure their buy lists. But again, you, you, you flagged one of the problems there, which is that if everybody knows that one card is, is the problem, like, you know, when Oko got banned, most of the time we knew it was Oko, um, then it does help them because they can just take that one card off the ban list. But in the in the case of this week, I don't think anybody's 100% sure what's going. Like, is it dig through tax, dig through time in Pioneer to get rid of, in, to weaken inverter plus make sure dig through time doesn't become an increasingly uh, problematic card in the format? Is it breach in modern and or legacy because it's looking just insane there? Um, <clears throat> is it grinding station because they don't want to ban breach in modern? Um is it once upon a time in modern because it's showing up everywhere in all sorts of different decks? Anything that's running green tends to have it, and it's it across like four or five different archetypes. You can make cases for all of the above, but you know that makes a uh, that list of things you've got to take out of your market action for the week pretty broad, and and that will sting when some of those cards are not banned. Yeah, it's just. It, it... No one wants to be hit with a ban, and I understand that we don't want people waiting anxiously every Monday. But like at the same time, now, if, if you were worried that people were going to wake up every single Monday and worry if some card was going to be suddenly banned and they weren't going to be aware of it, I, you haven't, I don't feel like you've really fixed that problem. Like, you haven't really fixed that problem. Like, yes, now you don't wake up Monday and find out that your inverter deck is banned. But now you get anxious every Monday that an announcement's going to be made, that there will be an announcement, and then you spend an entire week nervous if your card is going to get banned. Like, doesn't that just end up being worse overall? There is clearly a tension between pushing cards hard enough that people get excited, want to build decks, that new archetypes emerge, and that sets sell well. And... The trailing set sales being negatively impacted by the cards eventually getting banned. Wizards seems to be betting that the upfront sales are more important than the trailing sales, which could well be true, looking at the statistics. But I wonder about the overall impact on brand and interactions per user commitment that trails out from that over time. I think that the less stable... Um, buying magic cards feels the less people will want to do it and that 
thesis has to be tested against the keeping the formats fresh all the time by constantly shaking them up with powerful cards will drive people to switch decks more often and sell more cards. There's, It's tricky. It's, it's a fairly complex puzzle they're trying to solve to grow their sales and profits while maintaining healthy formats, and we are a ways off from solving the equation. Yeah. Well, they are anyways. <clears throat> so, I've got it all solved. They should just ask me. <laughs> so anyway, Grinding Station is ridiculous with Breach because basically what you do is you dump a bunch of zero casting cost stuff in your graveyard and you're getting all these Grinding Station triggers to drop your whole... Like, basically every time you uh, sack a zero casting cost artifact, you get to get another trigger off your Grinding Station, which puts more stuff in your graveyard, which allows your Breach... Uh, tr- the things you're casting off breach to have enough fuel to do so because of course breach allows you to cast things out of your graveyard equal to their casting cost but if their casting cost is zero you're basically getting them for free um so you basically get your whole graveyard in in uh your whole deck into your graveyard and then you can cast like a thassa's oracle to win the game and it can win my understanding is it can win turn two if it's not turn two it's turn three it's very very fast nasty combo um, and I do not expect it to survive for very long in this in modern. No, no, it doesn't uh, doesn't seem like something you want to keep around. So for what it's worth, I, I suspect on a world breach will go. And then the funny thing is, this is a real pity because this deck there's a, there are a bunch of different takes on the deck, but across them all, there are some common elements that are really good specs in theory based on wow, that's a powerful card that's going to see play. That a lot of people would love to see post up in the format for a long period of time and not get banned out of existence were the overall power level more reasonable. Things like Goblin Engineer, Thassa's Oracle, Emery Lurker of the Lock, Scrap Trawler, Urza, Mox Ambers, Grinding Station, Sword of the Make, Thopter Foundry, Wishclaw Talisman, and Breach, all of which have been talked about at specs at some point or another. So, <laughs> you know, it'd be great if this if this deck was viable without being broken. It would be. I mean, it's always better to have viable decks that are interesting than not, uh, but it just doesn't seem like that's <clears throat> where we are, right? So next on our list, we got Young Wolf Foils at a Dark Ascension going from 5 to $10. I'm pretty sure this is on the back of the Yogmoth deck in Modern, if I'm not mistaken, which makes use of four copies of Young Wolf, if I recall correctly. <clears throat> Probably. It's showing up in Popper, too, which could be part of it as well. Sure. Yeah, they run they run four copies in uh, in the Ogmoth deck, which most recently put up like a fourth place finish at a SCG Modern IQ, and they have a bunch of online five O's. Um, this has been going on for a while. I can't remember who it was that made this deck famous. I want to say was it Autumn Burchette? I can't remember if it was Autumn or not. Um, but anyway. I think it was at a big SCG tournament, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, maybe it was a GP win like a, a month or six weeks ago. Uh, the deck's been out there, and the only card in it that's likely to get targeted by bannings is Once Upon a Time. Uh, not clear to me whether it injures the deck in a major way or not, because I haven't spent enough time uh, analyzing the deck itself or watching enough games. Um, but I'd love to see this game, this deck continue to do well in the format, because I'm pretty sure I have some foil Giralf's Messengers. I'm certain I have some Russian Yogmoth sitting around. That would be pretty nice. Find uh, find some Russian foil Yogmoths floating around. 
Well, I mean, those are already pretty expensive, but the price has certainly come down from the summer. Uh, after that is Shellback Isle foils out of Lorwyn, also the modern breach deck, um, thirty-eight to eighty-five. Oh my God, sell these! This is a little different. This is from the, I think I saw Shellback Isles not in the breach Urza builds, but in the, um, the version that has, or it's Inverter of Truth from Pioneer brought into modern using elements of oh what's that deck called what's the one that uses like phyrexian unlife and pentad prism oh ad nauseum yeah so it's like an it looks like ad nauseum and pioneer inverter smashed together but there's no ad nauseum in the deck it's four thassa's oracle four inverter of truth four jace wielder of mysteries three pact of negation four angels grace four serum visions four spoils of the vault Four Pentad Prism, three Talisman of Dominance, three Wishclaw Talisman, and four Phyrexian Unlife. And then in the lands, they have four Sheldock Isle. Because hmm. the whole thing with Sheldock Isle is it has Hideaway when the land comes into play, comes into play tapped. Whenever it does, look at the top four cards of your library, remove one of them from the game face down, then put the rest on the bottom of your library. And then for it taps for blue, and for blue and a tap, you can play the removed card without paying its mana cost if your library has 20 or fewer cards in it. So Shelldock Isle is really nice there because your whole game plan is to get your whole uh, library into your graveyard and then win off of Oracle or Jace Wielder of Mysteries. So those free spells off Shelldock are just, you know, free. Free. Yeah. Um, nice to see three Wishclaw Talisman here, but again, this is a deck that's... Uh, you know, if Inverter was to get targeted in Modern via Oracle or Jace Wielder Mysteries getting banned or something down the road, this might, one might be in trouble. But I think this deck survives this round of bannings because it's not a Breach deck. Um, and there's no evidence to me that Inverter decks... Though Inverter decks might get targeted for Dig Through Time in Pioneer. In Modern, Dig is already gone. And there's nothing... This deck doesn't have enough results yet in big modern events for anybody to be thinking about banning this out of existence. So this could be the thing that like floats to the surface after the other stuff gets banned. Yeah, that's possible, I suppose. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I like to try and guess what wizard's going to do on their bands, although I'm not usually dead on. So, I mean, if this deck does become more prominent, it put, it would prevent things like Oracle inverter and Jace wielder mysteries from collapsing completely. If it gets injured out of pioneer, and it would also really help cards like Pact of Negation, Angel's Grace, Spoils of the Vault, uh, Talisman of Dominance, Wishclaw Talisman, and Phyrexian Unlife, because that's all stuff that, as we said, was related to Ad Nauseam. That hasn't really been a big deal for a while, and these cards haven't been printed in a while. So unless some of them show up as foils in the Mystery Boosters next week, uh, a lot of them could take off. For sure. I know that I waited a while for several of those to pop and got nowhere with them and ended up selling them at normal rates so it would be appropriate if they make a bunch of money now for someone other than me i managed to snag some shell dock aisles at five bucks last week that i suspect i'll get out uh at over 10 sometime in the next couple months yeah probably i should check my inventory i might have foil shell docks stashed from personal collection I should go check that. Next on the list, we got Gideon of the Trials out of Amonkhet, going from 14 to 30 plus or so uh, for about 150% gains. This is on the back of last week already showing strong gains. Um, and this is just based on it's 
utility as an anti-combo card facing off against both Breach and Inverter, uh, primarily in Pioneer. Yeah, this is a cool card. I talked about these with Cliff uh, a bit while you were on vacation, but essentially it worked. You know, I don't love sideboard cards, but getting to the trials is interesting because it can work as an anti-combo sideboard card in any strategy that makes white mana and combo decks can also play it and use it as a counter to other combo decks and then he can also do other things right like you can cast this card for three mana and make it annoying for your combo opponent to win and then there's also other text on the card that you might be able to take advantage of so uh this is a pretty big jump in the price honestly i don't know why we'd be seeing it move 150%. I would antis- would have guessed that this would be upticks in 5 and 10% at a time type of thing. So maybe there was some other catalyzing event that we missed, but Well, um, I mean one of the things it's just one of the things fast. is that the analysis is not that it's only a sideboard card. Like the mono white decks that are using Heliod Suncrowned and Walking Ballista to win, the white mono white combo strategies in Pioneer um, run at main like it's they run some combination of Gideon Blackblade, Gideon of the Trials, and Gideon Ally of Zendikar. So they could yeah, the Gideon use, Tribal decks. Yeah, they they can use anywhere between two, three, and four copies. And if you check out on like Goldfish, the history of the deck placing in events, it's been putting up five O's and four ones pretty much consistently for weeks. So there's there's a lot of people on this deck or versions thereof, and between that and the decks that want to pull it out of the sideboard to to use it's it's risen to the position where i think it's in the definitely in the top 50 cards for pioneer i'm just checking the list right now it's number 22 19% of decks on magic online running it an average of 2.5 copies wow it's more than i, I yeah i i that's i said so that must be what's doing it then like that's got to be the the main driver here is it is the Gideon tribal deck playing at main deck? Um, makes sense. Uh, Doomsday all over the place. Uh, we've got the weather light copies here, but the sixth edition copies moved as well. I'm looking about five to 15. I believe the sixth edition were like six to 18. So about everyone tripled up. Um, I don't have a great answer for this. Is this some sort of like legacy underworld breach deck? You got any ideas here? I don't think this is the first time we've talked about it before. I mean, I'm definitely seeing Doomsday decks in Legacy doing well. Like, there was a Legacy Challenge deck on March 1st that went 6-2 and two that was running uh, for Doomsday. That deck is 2 Baleful Strix, 2 Thassa's Oracle, Street Wraith, 2 Teferi Time Raveler, 4 Brainstorm, 4 Dark Ritual, Duress, 4 Ponder, 4 Preordain, 2 Thoughtseize, 1 Edge of Autumn, 1 Predict, 4 Doomsday, 4 Force of Will, Lion's Eye Diamond, 2 Lotus Petal, 3 Arkham's Astrolab. So it looks like you've got elements of the Thassa's Oracle game plan leaking into Legacy and being run with Doomsday because Doomsday basically does an inverter of truth impression here. Of course, this is the sorcery with for three black that states, search your library and graveyard for five cards and exile the rest. Put the chosen cards on top of your library in any order. You lose half your life or end it up. So you are basically exiling most of your library once you have your combo assembled in hand and you're ready to go off. Hmm. Makes sense, I suppose. I mean, we're still talking about legacy, though. 
But we're also still talking. We're talking also talking about a card that's only been printed a couple times and not any time in recent memory, right? Was it a M twenty five reprint? Is the most the only one in the last ten years? Yeah, I do believe it was reprinted recently. Like it's not like sixth edition was the last time it showed up. Yeah, it was uh, in- yeah, Masters twenty five. It was a mythic at that point. So how so how deep is the inventory on TCG Player for Doomsday twenty fifth edition? My guess is that non foil copies are still relatively plentiful and foils are drying up. <sighs> Five foils at twenty three bucks. Non foils, another seven copies at about yeah eleven bucks. Yeah, there you go. So I mean, there's still legacy players out there. I mean, as much as we say legacy is dead, it's not that no one's playing it. It's just that it's not going to be a format you're going to see any growth in. It's quiet. Yeah, more static than 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 quiet. Sure, sure. I guess you can get the the foil uh, masters twenty five copies are. 20 bucks i wonder if that's good might be good that almond cat invocation is 60 how many how many listed total foils five. Oh yeah well i mean probably because legacy players will buy foils they have nothing to fear <laughs> oh yeah. And, yeah, yeah and i don't the well breach is a breach decks are certainly going to get hammered like wrecked in legacy i think breach will get is possible that breach is banned in legacy next monday um but this deck probably not I don't think there's anything in here that's likely to get banned. Most of, most of these cards are pretty straightforward in this format. We know legacy players will buy foils, and we also know legacy players make terrible decisions with their money. So, foil doomsday is probably good. <laughs> Fair. Um, all right, so next on the list we've got Silence. Uh, both non-foil and foils moving, but I think we're tracking the non-foils here going from two to six. This is because both modern, modern and legacy breach decks uh, are running silence, and I find this very amusing because I distinctly remember mentioning silence um, as being an interesting controller combo piece and having Daniel Fournier like shit all over it. Um, I'm sure you chimed in as well. Silence is one of those cards that lots of people, not just me, have tried to make work for years and always just seems like a suboptimal option. And yet here we have it showing up in multiple different formats. I'm pretty sure that it has put up good results in both Pioneer Modern and Legacy as of late. Looks like Jeskai Underworld Breach has 43 uh, top results registered on Goldfish right now, which means they came from Magic Online uh, in Legacy. And then there is a apparently creative mining deck in Modern and a Boros Feather deck in Pioneer. Um, the creative mining deck is related to Indomitable Creativity, which is higher up on the list, and went from $1 to $3 in non-foil for like 250% gains. Basically what this deck does is it uses uh, token generators to and artifacts to put stuff into play that Indomitable Creativity can replace with an Emrakul. So one version of the deck is two Emrakul Aeons Torn, four Teferi Time Raveler, for Lightning Bolt, for Silence, for Abraid, for Farseek, for Manamorphose, for Remand, for Indomitable Creativity, for Polymorph, and then a bunch of lands. And that those lands are notable because they include four Dw- Dwarven Mine, which is the common red mountain out of Throne of Eldraine that creates a 1-1 red dwarf creature token when it comes into play that gives you something to swap for the Emrakul off the Polymorph or the Indomitable Creativity. <laughs> dwarven mind getting work done indomitable creativity getting work done i mean this there's a lot of cool decks that 
pop out of the woodwork when they print broken cards, right? Um, yes. But th- there's nothing like really new in this deck. This is just people figuring out new applications. I mean, we've seen Indomitable Creativity Polymorph decks before. They weren't in this specific configuration. Silence is not a new addition. The only card in the only two cards in this deck that have been printed in the last year for the first time are Teferi Time Raveler and Dwarven Mine, right? Uh it sounded like it. I'd have to stop and look closely at the yeah. list. But yeah. Um yeah, I mean we thought this is a so silence, I think when you brought it up before, I commented that I had tried it in the past and it always looks like it's going to be great but the problem is that the timing is always not it the time is never as good as you need it to be for the card to be worth its slot but i want to say that i you know provide the caveat that there could be a combo deck that uses it somehow to great effect the Um, the key the key piece of the puzzle here is definitely to fairy right forcing your opponent to operate at sorcery speed uh adds juice to silence because the problem with silence cast say in their upkeep has always been okay but what if they have an instant they'll just respond right right yeah Um, it wasn't worth the slot and do something and and maybe then you you know you didn't you cast you used burned a card for no reason but with teferi forcing them to operate at sorcery speed they can't even do that so if you get you have teferi down and then you silence them you just time walked for one white yeah yep um uh it's 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 amusing i'm not not going to debate that and clearly effective and then over in Legacy, it's not in the main, I don't think, in this Breach deck. It is two in the sideboard. But that one runs a Teferi, a single copy Teferi Time Raveler. Um, can't run more because the rest of the deck is so busted. Uh, four Brainstorm, one Flusterstorm, two Lightning Bolt, three Orem's Chant, which is basically their main deck silences. Um, Orem's Chant is like an old school silence that newer players might not know about. It's uh, one white target player can't play spells this turn. And it's got a kicker of one white, so if you pay two white, it's they can't play spells this turn and creatures can't attack this turn. So they can't do anything on their turn. So it's just strictly better than silence. So they basically add additional Orem's chance vis-a-vis silence in the sideboard to get up to five copies after sideboarding if they need to. Um, mm-hmm. Presumably when they're facing uh, decks that like to attack more often. Uh, four Ponder, four Preordine, two Spell Pierce, four Brain Freeze, two Predict, one Intuition, one Savine's Reclamation. It's a commander card coming out of nowhere. Four Force of Will, four Lion's Eye Diamond, four Lotus Petal, and four Underworld Breach. This is the deck that has put up just tons of results on Magic Online. Four one, four one, seven one, seven one, seven one, six two, five zero, oh, over and over and over again. Um, deck looks real nasty. That's uh, that's fascinating. So these reclamation is a card that commander players are kind of frustrated about because it's so. Uh, oh no, I'm thinking of Terraria's Protection, not Savine's Reclamation. Sorry, Savine's Reclamation is a cool card out of Commander that I think probably has a bright future. What is the price of that these days? Savine's Reclamation Five is bucks. four bucks. It seems like it might be good. Let's see what's the inventory on that look like. 32 vendors, not, uh, one guy's got a bunch at seven bucks. Is that Commander 2019 or 2018? That is 19. Yeah, so it's a newish card. So that was, yeah, well, 20, Commander 2019 would be, oh God, Commander 2019 is the, is actually 2019, right? No, is it, is it, but Command, no, the, or is Commander 2019 released in 2018? No. It's, it's from this fall. It's from this past fall. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, because they've got the core sets and the commander yeah, so, sets are one off. Yeah. Core sets are the ones that seem like they're a year in advance. The commander decks yeah. were. Although I don't think commander decks are going to be called Commander 2019 anymore. It's going to be like Commander Icoria or something. Because yeah, yeah, we're yeah. getting the split the split sets. Um, so means reclamation started high, up around eight bucks. It's been fading down, got down as low as two and a half in J- early January, and now it's on a distinct upswing. So I think you can easily make the argument that Savine's Reclamation is was an excellent buy at 2.5, and it's probably still a buy at 5, um, given what the ramp and inventory levels look like, because we're way past peak supply, and this is looking like an invert, like a U shape. Pushing it, you can assume that it's going to push back up into the $8 to $10 range pretty easily. Yeah, yep, 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 agreed. And And not on the basis of this deck running a single copy, just on the fact that this is a useful card in general in Commander. Yes, also agree on that. Uh, okay, Grand Coliseum foils out of onslaught. This week showing twenty to sixty-seven, so seventy bucks. Last week it showed up from ten to twenty. A lot of action on this card for whatever reason. Uh, I mean, the onslaught foils are obviously very rare. Is there a reason people are after this now? Beyond you know, other than just oh, it's another. City of Brass that no, like, no one's really looked at. This is the, this is the part so. of the, the discussion where we say it's not really $65. Like, this is just last week we noted it was at 20 There might have been a copy at 28 a copy at 32 and then the next one was 65 or something. And the two inter, like, copies in the middle there got snapped off because people looked at it and went, well, this is my last chance. Do I want it or not? Yeah, yeah. So that's also true. That doesn't mean you're necessarily going to get 70 on the next one. Could be... The higher you push up that cur- price curve, the smaller your market gets. Yes. So it takes longer and longer I, I to sell like, it, the more expensive it gets. I would like a Onslaught Foil Grand Coliseum for the EDH binder, but I am sure as hell not paying $70 for it, and I bet most people aren't either. Yep. So, uh, Herald of the Pantheon out of Magic Origins, going foils going from five dollars to like seventeen. Um, I don't have anything specifically on my radar as to why that would be happening, other than a general interest from Commander players. Yeah, me neither. Uh, but I presume that that's solid, uh, solid reasoning. I mean, that's definitely the, this, the right. This is the two-two for one in the green Centaur Shaman enchantment spells. You cast cost one less to cast. Whenever you cast an enchantment spell, you gain one life. So anybody who's building Theros-themed commander decks these days is probably trying finding a way to fit this in. Yeah. And, you know, keep in mind that Theros hasn't been on the streets. You know, the EDH crowd is slow to react. So it's not surprising that anyone who wanted to be playing EDH... Enchantments in EDH might only just now be getting around to buying some of the cards they were looking for. Yeah, I mean, the Magic Origins was a ways back. This got reprinted in Commander 2018, but of course only as a non-foil. So the foils were probably relatively drained heading into Theros. Somebody, some people bought some speculatively, I'm sure. Uh, and now you've got like real enchantment-focused Commander players uh picking them off here and there and driving the price up further. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we talked about the Indomitable Creativity deck, mentioned that that card went from a dollar to three. Um, I would I would guess foils are uh, on some kind of a tight curve right now, right? 
one would have to imagine if those if the uh, non foils went from change to three bucks. Let me just take a look here. Do you have any uh, indomitable creativity? Oh no, not at all. I'm sure I have some from whatever the first janky modern deck was that used it. It's the kind of thing that would catch my attention and I would buy if it was cheap enough. I mean, I definitely would have looked at it and went, this is interesting, but I, I didn't buy any now. This was an Ither Revolt card. It has only the two printings. It's so weird to look at cards from even three years ago where you don't have 17 different versions of. Yeah, there's two foils left on TCG Player, at, both at about 9 to $10. Uh, sorry, six co- six copies total. Five at nine dollars, and one at uh, another one at like eleven. Um, you just buy those because there's <laughs> there's no way Indomitable Creativity is on uh, Wizards reprint list this year. I'd be very surprised if it was one of the foils that was in the mystery boosters, and even if it was, it would be a mythic um, in that form. And I don't see if there's a ma- moder- uh, some kind of like master's product coming out in late summer. I don't think this is going to be a part of it. So any of these fi- foils you can find under 10 are probably fine, even if the Indomitable Creativity deck is mostly tier 2, tier 3 jank. People probably don't even, at Wizards probably forgot this card exists. You'd be like, oh, what do you think about Indomitable Creativity? Like, what? What card? I'm thinking about it. Sets two years in advance. I'm not paying attention to this card. I don't think anybody was testing Dwarven Mine with it during Eldraine testing. Yeah, props to play design if they did. Yeah. (laughs) But what's the effect on Polymorph plus Indomitable Creativity? Let's spend a day on that. No. Uh, All right. Flash out of Masters 25, 225 to 9. Uh, that's a 300% gain. Flash came up a few weeks back, and I can't recall what it was that was driving that interest. Uh, did it come up a couple weeks ago? Mm-hmm. I don't remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm going to check on Goldfish because I know there was something going on. I want to say that this was, was it CDH using Flash to get Oracles into play or something? Oh, Maybe. Or flashing an inverter of truth, mm-hmm. flash inverter of truth, and play. I'm Thassa. just gonna instead of instead of trying to stake a pole on the ground, I'm just gonna you know feign ignorance and look this up later. The sure, it's on the tip of my tongue because I know we've talked about it in the last six weeks. But anyway, okay. flash hasn't been printed like uh, Doomsday was a Masters twenty five card. So my guess is that the foils are pretty drained down that road as well. Flash from Magic 25. Yeah, two copies left. $23 and $23 market at five. So they've been recently cleaned out. Okay. So somebody went after foil flashes. We're not exactly sure why they went after foil flashes. Well, Flash Flash is definitely... uh, It's still legal in EDH, right? Uh, or was it was because Protean Hulk came back at one point. Is, it is legal in Commander, yes. The cool Flash card is Aether Flash, by the way. That's the one you guys are supposed to be playing. <laughs> card sweet. Yeah, I think of this card as mostly a CEDH card when it comes up, um, but I can't recall what the big impetus was. I'm just bringing up the, the page on EDH Rec to see what the associations were lately. Okay, yeah. It looks like it's in 81% of the decks that have Thassa's Oracle. So it seems to me that I'm right about that. Okay. 
So Flash is getting used to play. I would imagine it's got to be flashing Inverter Truth is the intent then, right? Like you don't need to flash in Thassa's Oracle, but you might want to flash in Inverter of Truth because that costs four. Well, the thing here is that it allows you to get it into play at instant speed during somebody's end step, right? And then untap and win so that the whole, the uh, whole table doesn't have a chance to respond. Yeah, that's true too, I suppose. You get that angle. So, anyway, uh, that's the deal with that card, and we're done with segment one. Let's move on to our cards to watch, the cards that we think may have a solid chance at showing some uh, real momentum, uh, usually in, in within a 3- to 12-month period. I'll start off with uh, a Throne of Eldraine extended art that was on my radar early, but I don't think we ever made it a cast pick. Um, and I distinctly remember Jason... Uh, alt saying he didn't think it was going to be a, much of a big deal, but it's actually showing some pretty solid numbers on EDH rec this far down the road. Um, card I'm referring to is Return of the Wild Speaker. The foil uh, extended arts can be had in and around six, seven, sometimes eight dollars, and I think a sell target of fifteen for like a hundred percent gains within say a year period is probably pretty likely. Um, it's in four thousand EDH rec decks reported already. Uh, it's got a real ste steep ramp. Um, and moderate inventory with, at this point, little access to restock. Like, how many more collector booster boxes are going to be opened for Eldraine? Yeah, like, none. They're all, any that are, out, any that are out there are still sealed, are going to stay sealed for the most part. Yeah, and so, I mean, this is a card that, for four and a green, you either draw cards equal to the greatest power among non-human non creatures you control, which is the thing you're going to use it for most often. But it can also do a little overrun impression by giving all your non-human creatures plus, plus three, plus three till end of turn. So it's got a modal uh, utility to it. And you can get the foils... I would guess you're going to see these drained out slowly, but the ramp is real steep. Like There's only about 15, 20 copies on TCG that are under $10, and then they start ramping up towards 15, 16, 20, and then above. So... Whether this takes 6 months, 12 months, or 18 months, I feel pretty confident that this is going to be one of the extended arts that's going to demonstrate that they can get there. The thesis I'm still working with on extended arts is that they just need enough time if the card has a strong demand profile because they are very front-loaded. Like, a lot of them get opened. People get those collector booster boxes. They don't hang on to them. They crack them. They're looking for awesome stuff. They want to get a, like... Japanese extended art foil uro or something and flip it for big bucks. So I would think that a lot of the collector booster stuff is very front-loaded, but has, unlike the regular booster boxes, does not continue to be opened throughout the rest of the year. Like as you're looking for standard staples later in the year, whether you are cashing in sets on Magic Online and getting you know vendors doing that so they can get access to cheaper inventory, or you're buying challenger decks, or you are cracking regular boosters or drafting or whatever, that's all coming from regular booster packs and does not add any additional inventory into the market for the extended art versions. I would imagine that the regular version of this card is going to stay low for a long time because there's no other format that needs it. You only might need you know one or two copies for your green decks and commander, and the vast majority of players that want the card may just go for that non-foil um, and keep it cheap. 
But the way that this FOIL ramp is shaping up and the number of listings that are remaining compared to some of the other extended arts suggests to me that the demand is there and it's just going to be a slow, steady thing that drains these out of the market. Yeah, I can totally get behind this. I think, as we've discussed in the past, that them being front-loaded is definitely going to skew perception early in the life cycle of the extended arts, especially coming out of Throne of Ultrain, the first set. We don't really have a feel quite yet of how that's going to work out. And it definitely hasn't been enough time for these to really mature yet, right? Throne of Eldraine was in September, and it's just the start of March. Really October, I think, right? So still uh, still a slow uptake on that. But I, I do see the supply is is on the lowish side. Uh, 4,000 EDA track decks is a good number to have this quickly. So clearly the demand is there. No one seems to have a lot of copies, um, and the price gets up to 12 bucks you know, about halfway down the list. So it's not even like you have to get through that many before you're starting to see some improvement. So I think that I'm right there with you on this being solid and extended art foils in general are probably around, it's around the point where we're supposed to seriously be looking at extended art foils from Throne of Eldraine because this is probably when the good ones are starting to make themselves known and might be the last stop before the inventory really starts to get uh, get away from us. And think about what this is going to do, right? So far, people have been pretty shaky on extended arts. A lot of the extended art prices that were posted early on for Eldraine were too high, and they came down significantly. And it scared a lot of people off. And our Discord people like are very split on whether they want to put any more money into extended arts, because if they bought, you know... Uh, like I go back, there's one week in particular I, I have flagged that we'll go over at some future date where I picked like three extended arts early on and there we I probably owe people apologies because I cost them money. It was way too early. Um, but that doesn't mean that extended arts can't make you money. It just means you got to wait. Like wait for them to bottom out, find the bottom of that curve. And then things might get a lot better. If we get six months out and you start to see the Eldraine ones draining really hard and getting pushed up on pretty much all of the multi-format playables, that's going to be that a signal to everybody that they're actually a really good investment because you just have to wait a little while, get to that bottom, and then you can scoop hard. And if that becomes a known quantity, then everybody will be doing it, and it's going to push them up that much harder and faster. Yeah, and uh, it'll be interesting because it'll be right around the time that we get to see whether Throne of Eldraine Extended Arts um, are doing well at like the eight month, nine month uh, time frame is right around when we'll be in peak buying position for the th- uh, Theros ones. Yeah, exactly. Right. And we've also got Ikoria so, coming up. So if we saw six or seven of these take off in price and land on our, our fast movers list between now and Ikoria, it's certainly going to shape what I do about Ikoria collector boosters and once we have more information about what those super fancy box toppers are for Ikoria regular booster boxes, there's going to be all sorts of things to consider. Mm-hmm. I am, you know, overall, I really like Extended Arts, and I, I want to think that they have a really good future. Um, I'm not... I, I'm, I'm not as sold on it as I feel like I should be because we are getting so many premium versions of so many cards right now that it's like... It used to be you had the pack, the non-foil and the foil, and that was it. 
And now it's just unbelievable how many copies of cards you tend to have access to. Uh, but, you know, a card like Return of the Wild Speaker, there's, you know, yes, there's, you know, the pack, the pack, the pack foil, the extended art, the extended art foil, there might be a pre-release foil, there might be a Planeswalker pack foil, but at the end of the day, the extended art one is still the cool, or the, yeah, the extended art one is still the cool one. And even though there might be a bunch of copies, there's one clearly, like, good copy. Uh, I, and maybe the trick is... The extended arts, the cards whose extended art is the only cool copy, we know that that's where we're supposed to go. And the and other cards who have multiple cool versions, uh, we know that we're actually supposed to kind of back away from. One of the things I think people are tripping over is comparing, calling extended arts premium when they don't yet have, when a lot of them don't have premium pricing. Like, for instance, Foil Japanese Uro uh, Titan of Nature's Wrath is a premium card. It's probably going to be three or $400 in the future. There are scant copies under 200 out there that people should probably be snapping off. But, you know, the Return of the Wild Speaker Foil EA is $7. That's not a premium card. That's just an underpriced potential future premium card. And it's not that I'm predicting it's going to be one day, one day it's going to be a $100 card. I just think that it's got a modest to moderate demand from Commander. And that alone will be enough to move 50 to 100 copies in the, in the course of the next year. Even if the vast majority of people that want the card just play the cheapest dirt cheap copy. Um, yes. And I think it all, it all loops back to my comments earlier about how Vendors don't have easy ways to restock these cards. They have to either crack the collector booster boxes themselves, which have notoriously low margins now. Uh, Eldrain was, you could sell them for like 300 at peak, and we acquired them under 200 So our Discord made some good money there. But on the uh, Theros ones, they got down as low as like 190 which leaves very little margin. So the vendors are not going to be super motivated to do that, which means it's buy list only. And then with a with a team like Card Kingdom that doesn't go to major events, which is explains why they tend to have one of the most aggressive buy lists in the industry, um, because they have to to make sure they get enough card flow coming in, given that they don't go to those events. You're going to see they have to raise the price to bring them in once they sell out. So if they've got three or four copies of, you know, such and such an extended art foil, once they sell them, they're not going to crack boxes to go get more. They got they're, so they're going to have to raise their buy list to bring them in. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So I, I think it's a good pick. I think it's uh, I think this card in particular is well positioned. Um, the demand definitely seems to be there. The pricing, the inventory all is set up, I think, to look very good in six to nine months. And beyond that, I think that it is showing that we need to be looking a little closer at Throne of Eldraine extended art foils for some opportunities to try and spot any more of these that are out there. I really like this next one, this pick, first pick of yours. Go for it. Well, <laughs> you know, it's funny. Both my first two picks this week are sort of retreads because I picked both of them before at like a much lower price point. But the thing is, I look at them today and they're, the numbers are still very good and I think they're worth buying right now. Uh, my first one is Merciless Eviction Foils. 
uh, on a gate crash are currently, all right, I'm going to tell you they're at $10, but the truth of the matter is that there is one copy at 10 bucks on TCG player right now. Uh, then the next one's 12 and then the next one's 14, 13, 15, and then 20. So the inventory on TCG player is real shallow. Uh, it's in 22,000 EDH rec decks. Um, it used to be, it was six bucks about three years ago. I think that's when I called it. Uh, and then it hit, you know, 10 ish and it's kind of floated around 10 to 12. It peaked a little bit. Now there's a copy at 10 or 11 again, but, uh, I mean, given the demand profile of this card, uh, and how low the foil supply is, and we're talking about gate crash. So it's, I'm not going to say old, but it's not a new card. Uh, it is not in mystery boosters. So you do have that concern. Um, it could show up there, but beyond that, I think, uh, you're as long as it's not in mystery boosters, I don't think you're going to miss here. Get in at 10 or 11, ride it to 20. I mean, you could even get in at 15 and ride the 25, honestly. Because it's been reprinted multiple times and commander products is a non-foil, it suggests that they might not be prioritizing reprinting it. There are a couple of different threats this year, of course, as we've noted in, in recent episodes. It could show up as a mystery booster foil. It could certainly show up as a card in Commander Legends next November. Um, but there are so many things that could be in those. We won't know till we know. Um, yeah, we're going to sound like broken records how many times we say that this year. Yeah. And the the foils from the mystery boosters are mythics. So they're still going to be relatively rare overall. Um, there's going to be, what, 121 different foils possible in the mystery boosters. And in a given box, you will get uh, 24 of them, right? There's 24 packs in the mystery booster box. Uh, uh, they're draft, they're draft boxes, so I'm pretty sure that's right. So it takes you four boxes, five boxes, to even approximate getting a full set of the foils. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're, bas- you're basically getting one of these foils per case. So while they, it probably impacts pricing, it might not do so for a super long period of time. The rebound on the, the cards included in Mystery Boosters is going to be shorter than it would be in other sets. Yeah, I and mean, we talked about mystery boosters to an extent before, but that you know, I think we came down on even if a card shows up in as a foil of the mystery boosters, there's probably not going to be enough that it's going to dramatically impact the price of a card. All right, what's your second card? All right, so my second pick this week is Shadow Spear uh, Extended Arts non foil at nine dollars. Um, I like these a lot because in comparing the total number of results for uh, the Shadow Spears to some of the other rares that have extended art, so like, for instance, looking at, say, Nylea's Intervention, there are, uh, for the non-foils of that card, something like 170 or 180, uh, sorry, 132 results. Whereas for Shadow Spear, there's only 61. That suggests that it's selling twice as fast as some of the lesser rare extended arts. Um, it's one of the top five commander cards from the set. It's holding a pretty steady price point around five bucks for the regular versions. So if you are looking for, uh, if you're on the game plan that extended arts are not where you want to be, maybe you just look at the $5 non-foils 
um, and assume that they will get to 10 within, say, 12 to 18 months. Um, This, to me, feels like not quite a smothering tide. It's not that ubiquitous, but it's going to see very, very broad play. Um, and that, and it's, they don't print equipment this good very often. And this equipment from constructed per, for constructed purposes is mitigated by the fact that it's legendary. So aggro decks can't, can't run a full complement. Um, but in commander, that's irrelevant because you can only have one copy in your deck anyway. So I can easily see these extended arts getting from 10 to 20, the ramp is not that long. There aren't really big walls. I think Hot Sauce Games with 50,000 plus sales on TCG has 13 copies. Nobody else has more than, I think MTG Mint Card, another major vendor, has eight. So I'd say like six to 12 months out, this is going to get pushed up 16, 18, 20. Seems very likely. Yeah, I definitely like this. Um the the numbers are there, right? You were talking about the EDH rec demand. We're talking about the volume of how fast it's selling relative to other cards in the same set. Uh, all of that sounds good. I'm on board with that. I also like that this is a very universal artifact. Um, Saffron made a point a while ago that I thought was noteworthy that he really liked this card because it was one of the best and cheapest way to get lifelink and pioneer which was something that he felt was missing overall from the set so or or from the format in general and and having access to this gave him that tool um, which is worth keeping an eye on because this could end up being one of those cards that like a lot of different decks have one or two cards and have one or two copies because it's it's useful um one of the better artifacts uh, equipments in the format so it seems like the card could have a lot of utility in Pioneer, in um, EDH, possibly in Standard. Um, so I'm and the Extended Art's pretty cool looking. So uh, you know, as long as the numbers are are good, I'm good. And it seems like that's what we're looking at right now. Yep. So you can go a bunch of different ways. I think all of the versions will rise. I think it's as easy for the five dollar regular copies to get to ten as it is for this ten dollar to get to twenty. So I'm not hung up on whether it's the extended art or not, but I think you want to own some Shadow Spears is the bottom line. Yeah, don't disagree with that. Um, all right, I will give my second card this week with Blasphemous Act. Um, also another card, like I said, I'm pretty sure I've picked before, but uh, I still think it looks good right now. Looking at the foils out of Innistrad are currently about $11 or so. Um, it is in 33,000 EDH track decks as opposed to Merciless Eviction's 22. Uh, supply is low. It's not quite as low as Merciless Eviction, but there's still only 13 vendors. Um, and you can score like three or four copies at $11. And then it starts getting into 14, 15 and up from there. Um we are seeing, uh, this was also a foil uh, at about $6, maybe three years ago or so. So it's taken a little while to get there. A similar uh, reprint pattern, similar to Merciless Eviction, in that it's been in Commander several times, but the only foil is from Innistrad, also not in Mystery Boosters at the moment. Uh, but essentially the same concept is you have a very popular EDH foil um i mean even within the last month i pulled the popularity of this off of their uh most popular cards in the last month list so i know that uh, it's being used today um so i think you're just it's a solid edh foil that's gonna look better as time goes on 
This has a lot of the same issues as your first pick in the same in the sense that it could catch a reprint in either the Mystery Boosters or Commander Legends. If it fades Mystery Boosters, you got a nice thick number of months before uh, before you have to worry about anything. So we're going to get that list. I would guess in the next few days, like the Mystery Booster LGS version comes out on the thirteenth. Um, Is it that soon? Yeah, that's uh, not this Friday, but the next Friday. So I would guess that Monday we get the foils list. Could be this Friday. Yeah. Okay. Um, so by the time some people hear this, they might be able to compare to the foils list for mystery boosters and see if it even matters. Hmm. And at which point I'd, I'd feel a lot better about it because I don't see Blasphemous Act, given its mechanic, being reprinted anytime outside of those two, those two potential options. Okay, cool. Um, all right, what is your next pick? This next one is one of these picks that's as much a discussion as it is a instruction to go buy something. Um, we're going to be talking in segment four a bit about Saffron Olive's article this week uh, about secret layers and whether they're worth buying. And part of that uh, gets into, you know, which ones have performed better than others and some theories about why that might be the case. Um, one of the cards that was recently produced from that series is comes out of the rat-focused uh, or themed uh, version of Secret Layer, and it included five copies of Rat Colony. Rat Colony is holding a pretty solid price point on TCG right now, about $7 or so. Um, and I could see these getting from 7 to 15 but there are some caveats. Um, it's got everything going for it from the perspective of it's pretty good when a card, when people want four of a card. It's even better when they want 20, 30, or 40 copies of a card. And if you're building Wrath decks in EDH, you're probably running the full complement of Wrath Colonies. What percentage of that market is buying a fancy version of Wrath Colony? versus getting you know somebody wanted to buy i think 30 copies from me this week at about two dollars of the normal version this is a uh, dominaria uncommon of course um and in its first printing uh probably a lot lower like out of every 10 people building rat decks maybe one maybe two of them would be interested in in the foil rat colonies but clearly that market it does exist because these copies are already draining and they're holding up a price um that's closing in on $10. So the market is there. Um, and this is clearly the best version of the card. This version looks far superior to the original uh, in terms of art. Uh, there is one other problem, though. The way that the secret layers are released, let's say, we don't know for a fact how many are sold, but let's say that it is 10,000. Saffron Olive's article suggests that some of these are maybe thirty or 40,000 copies. Um, that seems way too high to me. Um, so let's just go with whatever the number is. Like for argument's sake, let's just say it's 10. The way that secret layer sales work is that they pre-print the first X thousand, let's say it's 10. Um, and if you order early enough, then you get your stuff pretty much right away. It's in the warehouse. It's ready to go. They ship it like next day or a couple days later. You get it within a week and you can start selling. That's the people that currently have copies on TCG player. But I've heard reports from our members that ordered some later in the game that they still haven't got their rats. And they've been told by the really bad customer service related to the secret layer releases that's third-party operated that they will get them in March or April. 
which means additional inventory is coming and we may not be at peak supply, which suggests that maybe you don't want to run out and buy these rat colonies at $7. Maybe what you want to wait and do is take a look at this again in four to six weeks and circle back on this pick when we know that all the inventory has landed, see if it pushes these back down into the six, five, four dollar range for a little while, and then snap off a bunch of copies. And I think your hold from there on out is probably going to be long-ish, like 12 to maybe 18 months, a year, year and a half. But I'm very confident that a premium rat colony down the road is will get there. It's just going to be a matter of time. So it's not going to be a great quick flip option, maybe. Um, but given how many copies people buy when they commit to buying these, they will drain faster than your regular card. We talked about this a little bit off cast, and I definitely feel like that's a good assessment of the rat cards in general. Rat Colony gets to break that for a rule, which means that people may be willing to buy 30 premium copies, which um, could be disgusting, but people will do it. Uh, like you said, the concern about the backlog copies is legitimate. So we don't know how that's going to play out in how many are backlogged. You know, is it a thousand? Is it 10,000? Is it a hundred thousand? I don't know. So I agree that you got to be a little cautious, a little prudent at the moment to see how it plays out. But all it's going to do is slow the ascent of these rat colonies rather than destroy it. Um, and I think that, you know, if you wanted to be safe, you would wait until April or whatever to see how that ends up playing out. Uh, otherwise, you can buy it now if you're really greedy. But I, I would wait till till the, till the second wave launches. Um, the price probably won't have crept up too much by that point. And uh, you might get a bit of a discount as the new inventory hits. Yeah, because there are always other options, <clears throat> the smartest play here is probably just to wait and see what happens with that additional inventory. So call this a uh, a delayed pick. think you want these, don't necessarily think you need them right now. If you miss the boat and they push higher and never come back down, all that tells you is that the number of additional copies over the uh, first 10,000 or whatever was very low. Because there's a big difference. If Saffron's right and they're selling 40,000 copies apiece, which I, to me seems hysterically high, like doesn't make any sense to me, but we can get into that at a later date. Um, but if they're selling 10,000 and then there are 2,000 extra sold, that's not going to make a big difference in, in the price. It doesn't create a lot of pressure. But if there was three times more inventory coming in April versus the first wave, that would certainly be a big deal. And... So there's no guarantees because we don't know just how many copies sold. Um, so I would, you know, another thing you could look at instead um, that we were talking about off cast was the Serum Visions, the one that seemed to be in the, the highest demand. This is Serum Visions number 31 from the original Secret Layer Drops last November. You can get those for about 10 bucks a piece. There's 29 results left. Nobody has super deep inventory except... Kitchen Table Games has uh, 26 copies at 15 bucks. Um, you know, if you believe Modern is not dead, if you think people will prefer this version of Serum Visions, and you acknowledge that there's no further inventory of this version of the card forthcoming, then, you know, maybe this is a safer option along similar lines. Say to go from yeah. 10 to 16 or something, so that you, you end up putting in 40 a playset and you get... 
64 minus fees, um, some total, and make something like 40%. I think that's a smart a smart uh, play, for sure. Um, I, overall, I, I do like the card. I think that it's uh, getting to sell more than four copies of something that somebody is never going to be something you're upset about. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the bottom line between both of them is that if you're after that art, you're after that art four times over. And if you're after that rat, you're after that rat many times over. And so yes. you know, that's a lot. That's quite different than Return of the Wild Speaker, where people are buying them one at a time. Right. Right. That's 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 such a big difference that it's easy to kind of gloss over. But people are but it's totally true. Like these EDH cards, people buy one of these rat colonies, people buy as many as they can get their hands on. Like that can make a huge difference, in, even if it seems like the card shouldn't be as popular or isn't as popular. Um, that's going to move a lot more copies pretty fast. And that's also why Persistent Partitioners was flagged last year, because it has a lot of the same features as Rat Colony. Yeah. All right, so let me do my last pick here. Um, I'm actually looking at DeSpark from War of the Spark. Uh, this is my, I think, most specious pick of the set or of the week, but figure I should mention it anyways. Uh, War of the Spark or DeSpark is uh, $7 right, or God, I can't get any of these words right. DeSpark is a $4 foil out of War of the Spark. I'm looking at it to go to about 8 it is in about seven and a half thousand, almost eight thousand EDH rec decks right now. So it's quite popular for something out of War of the Spark, which is relatively recent. Uh, it is a for those who are unaware, it's a black white card that exiles expensive permanents. The supply is relatively short for uh, an ED uh, a War of the Spark uncommon as well. We're looking at uh, like I think there are oh come on scroll wheel. 27 vendors. Um, one guy's got a chunk of them at about 550, but other than that, there's it's not too bad. So this seems like the type of card that I'm not telling you guys is going to take off um, anytime soon. In fact, I I put the timeline on this at you know 12 months or more. But clearly, there's a lot of popularity for the spark for this card to be at almost 8,000 EDA track decks already. So I think you can be picking these up at you know, three to five dollar foils when you're placing your other orders. Maybe if you're buying stuff on sale and there's one floating around, because I bet you a year from now, these are eight, nine, ten bucks. Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest EDH cards in that set are registering like 12,000 copies right now. And that's like your Bola Citadels, your uh, Narciss Reversals, Jace Wielder of Mysteries, Narciss Parter of Veils, all cards we've talked about uh, in the past year. Um, the, the set overall is loaded with goodies and it's one of the booster boxes i think has the most the biggest chance to uh, show some acceleration in the next couple of years and d spark you know there's lots of kill spells in commander um, but because it exiles a permanent uh, with converted mana cost four or greater it tends to take out a lot of commanders um, and force them to recast so it's and it's instant speed so it's very useful to deal with something that's uh super problematic and because it's not creature only it's permanent based uh it's got a lot of utility against other potential threats at the table Mm -hmm. it's very versatile which is what you need your point removal to be in edh it's also a year old so a reprint of any kind in foil seems very unlikely yeah uh yeah i mean they might like fnm it or something right that's a possibility or some promo of that 
we saw it. So I, I accept that as a as a possibility, especially because it's an uncommon and not a rare. But because it's not a major card in standard right now, I don't see that happening. No, I, I don't think that it is likely. I see it as a as a possibility. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. So we don't we don't have a user pick this week. Uh, but what is your favorite out of our pick list here? If you can get Merciless Eviction for 10, that. Other than that, probably Return of the Wild speaker. I feel like it would be Rat Colony if we weren't waiting on all of the additional copies that may or may not be out there. I agree with all of that, except I think that the cheap Merciless Eviction foils are my number one. And if you miss the boat on those, then I like Shadow Spears best. And, Shadow uh, and whether or not it's extended art near 10 or regular at five, you're probably in good shape. Okay. Uh, segment three, metagame week in review. What are we, what are we looking at this week, James? We well, got a bunch of modern stuff to go through. So the only big tournament last weekend was uh, MTG Magic Fest Reno, but it was a limited Magic Fest, but they were running modern PTQs. And I thought that the decks that showed up uh, were pretty interesting coming out of that. So I wanted to take a look at a few of those. There was uh, one of the PQ2... <laughs> you two, huh? Yeah, it's <laughs> getting kind of late. One of the PTQs that they ran uh, first was a Death Shadow build. Uh, fairly straightforward. This is like Teamer Death Shadow. Uh, and then there was a Gruul Eldrazi list in second in the hands of one Cyrus Dom. Uh, and this was running two Bone Crusher Giant, four Eldrazi Obligator. This was a card that took down a Pro Tour once upon a time. Uh, one Clothis God of Destiny, four Matter Reshaper, four Noble Hierarch, four Reality Smasher, two Scavenging Ooze, four Thought Nut Seer, four Ancient Stirrings, two Dismember, four Lightning Bolt, and four Once Upon a Time. And having uh, tracked a bit of chatter about uh, Eldrazi strategies in Modern, I saw other people commenting that Eldrazi Tron, which is uh, not this list, um, was Once Upon a Time had reinvigorated that list, and people felt that was key to Eldrazi's strategies in general in Modern. So what happens with Once Upon a Time next Monday certainly matters. Hmm. I wouldn't have expected Once Upon a Time to be that big of a deal for, you know, Modern Eldrazi lists, no more so than any other strategy, but well, the nice Well, the, the nice thing about Once Upon a Time, of course, is that you're at the start of your game for free, if it's the first spell you cast, you're looking at the top five cards of your library, and you can reveal a creature or a land and put it in your hand. And for Eldrazi strategies, if you've already got Eldrazi Temple, it lets you grab a relevant Eldrazi to cast with it. If you have a good Eldrazi in hand, but not a Temple, it lets you find the Temple to cast it. Um, Against control strategies, it might let you go find Cavernous Souls early so you know you can waltz right past uh, counter spells. So it's it's pretty... It makes a lot of sense uh, alongside the Eldrazi because they... they, Some of their land... Not all of their lands are ranked equally. Temple making two mana is such a big deal if you can drop uh, Thought Not Seer or Reality Smasher a turn or two early. Right, right, that's for sure. I guess, uh, I think the fact that Once Upon a Time is so good in Eldrazi speaks less to how good it is in Eldrazi and more to how stupidly good Once Upon a Time is as a card. Like, these strategies don't feel that cohesive, and yet it's such a big deal. Third place in that tournament was uh, Teamer 
Uh, no, this is more of a Bant uh, Planeswalker control list. Two Jace the Mind Sculptor, three Teferi Time Raveler, four Ice Fang Quaddle. I've sold a lot of those this week. Uh, four Noble Hierarch, three Spell Queller, four Stoneforge Mystic, two Uro, Titan of Nature's Wrath, four, three Cryptic Command, two Force of Negation, four Path to Exile, four Arkham's Astrolab, a Batter Skull, and a Sword of Feast and Famine. That's my kind of deck. I could see running that. So that's four Stoneforge Mystics with one... The Batter Skull and the Feast and Famine. Okay, so yeah. two equipment. Yeah. This picture is small. Arkham's Astrolab 2 uh, probably doing too much work in modern, honestly. Yeah, that's. I think that I think like, that's easily uh, broadly accepted. It is interesting that when Modern Horizons came out, was revealed everyone's like the set's bad and doesn't matter, and uh, boy, we were wrong. <laughs> yeah, we were wrong. Yep. Well, I don't know about we, but lots of people thought so. Yeah, I don't remember my impression of it. Um, pretty normal blue whitish control deck in fourth place not too wild about that um uh the aldrazi tron in fifth over there uh still running the carns with that package they didn't ban mycosynth lattice yet right uh yeah they did they did ban mycosynth lattice yeah. okay but this guy is still let me see here where is it this way these pictures are laid out is so obnoxious yeah, there we go. So still, the Eldrazi Tron still still playing the full play set of Karn, even without Mycosynth Lattice. Yeah, because it lets, lets them go get Liquid Metal liquid metal Coating, Sorcerer's Spyglass, Grafdigger's Cage, Ensnaring Bridge, Torment's Crypt, Torpor Orb, uh, Walking Ballista, Witchbane Orb, and Mystic Forge, or Worm Coil Engine. So there's still like plenty of options. Uh, you know, Silver Bullets that can go pull yeah. out the sideboard. Yep, um, yep. So... So one of the other things I thought was interesting was over on the lists that were modern, there was a modern league uh, that I wanted to take a look at. Um, okay, so switching over to this modern league uh, that just went down today, the one of the 5-0 lists that caught my attention was a pretty weird-looking humans list. Four Charming Prince, four Dark Confidant, four Eternal Witness, four Kessig Malcontents, Four Noble Hierarch, four Phantasmal Image, four Seasoned Pyromancer, four Thalia's Lieutenant, four Collected Company, four Ethervile, and then the usual lands. Weird because some of the early drops that are often in this deck are gone. Um, there's no Mantis Riders. And cards like Kessig Malcontents that didn't used to be four ofs uh, and Seasoned Pyromancer... Uh, are suddenly four ofs and charming prince is a four of and dark confidant is back on the menu it's also missing uh that one drop that gets bigger every time you play a human that was a mainstay of the humans list too wasn't it yeah i would have assumed the the one that yeah. uh not thalia's lieutenant but uh champion of the parish is that it which one champion of the parish correct is that his yeah name? champion of the parish and sometimes you would see uh the one two that leaves clue tokens as well three bit inspector yeah, yeah, yeah. Thraven Inspector was another popular one for the the body count. Hmm. But no dice, right? This is this is just a whole other thing. It's got a fairly Japanese-sounding uh, handle associated with it, which doesn't surprise me because the Japanese are notorious for running this kind of like out-of-nowhere tech into unsuspecting opponents. Yeah, he's really just... This is like so many twos 
He's clearly just trying to get his Aether Vial on too and then leave it there and not have to play the game of managing the correct value for it. You know, am I supposed to have well, this on and, one, and, on two, and, on three nonsense? And have you ever seen an Eternal Witness main in a human's list, let alone four copies? I mean, granted, I don't pay a lot of attention to scouring these lists uh, on a regular basis, but no more. Definitely not four of them, that's for sure. But I actually think that's probably a good idea because uh, the deck generally doesn't have a lot of card advantage otherwise, right? Collected Company being the... and. Uh, Ether Vial provides yeah. that early mana advantage that later becomes a dead draw, and Collected Company um, is your reach. So Eternal Witness, if you get a Collected Company into an Eternal Witness, you could get additional into which, and that Eternal Witness say brings back a Seasoned Pyromancer, then all of a sudden your board presence went from zero to sixty. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. does a lot of work there. Um, in the next list, we also see Seasoned Pyromancers. This is more of a kiki jiki combo list. Um, that also seems to have a three copies of Season Pyromancer and has a Stoneforge Mystic package. So it's mm-hmm. Kiki Jiki combo plus Stoneforge. Well, you get to Eldritch Revolution your Season Pyromancer into Kiki Jiki. Mm, Season Pyromancer's on three, Kiki Jiki's on five. So first you got to have Linvala or something in the middle there, or a Restoration Angel. Isn't Eldritch Evolution two mana? Uh, like it, it jumps up two. Oh, uh, jumps you up two. Oh, yeah, you're right. It is. So yeah, you can go season Pyromancer, drop two tokens, and then get your. I don't know. That, I mean, that's not a combo. It's just nice that you can turn your season Pyromancer into something more relevant to your combo. Well, it's a combo in the sense that it leaves value behind despite having a sack creature. Yeah, but doesn't win the game on the spot. You still need your Restoration Angel or whatever to finish up. Um, right. But I don't remember seeing these two elements together before. Or any time recently. Um, another 5-0 list on there was uh, another Death Shadow approach. This was back to Grixis Death Shadow. The usual suspects in this list. Uh, Drown in the Lock and Brazen Borrower being uh, recent additions. But otherwise pretty much what we've seen before. Burn posting up a 5-0 result uh, in that modern league. Uh, probably the card most notable there is Crash Through. Um giving your creatures trample, making sure that blockers don't really matter if you have a big enough uh, swift spear. Mm-hmm. Um, the next interesting one, I think, is this uh, Through the Breach deck, which is basically just, is it control? And its win condition is Through the Breach. Like, it's, you know, it, it looks like just a traditional, is it spells build that also just, then that's how it manages to finish its opponents off instead of playing Karanos or whatever else. That's what it opts for. Mm-hmm. And they've got three Archmage's Charm, three Cryptic Command, and three two Force of Negation, four Remand. And they're running the full package of Omen of the Sea, which was a foil common that I flagged in our Discord a while back as one of our best ideas of the week um, outside of the podcast, where we were talking about whether that, how high that foil could get um, given... Uh, the level of play it was seeing beyond what people were expecting. Um, yeah. There's still... Uh, Boy, more season part master from the next guy, too. Yeah, and that's like a... With four of the rack? Four rack main deck? Yeah, well, that's basically a rack deck, right? It's four Shrieking yeah. Affliction, four of the rack. Um, yeah. And running Lightning Skelementals, season part masters, uh Thoughtseizes, and Liliana the Veils. 
I would love to see this deck continue to do well because there's certainly got plenty of seasoned pyromancers lying around, and I've got plenty of lightning skeletals from when that was. I wonder if lightning like skeleton, if lightning skeletal is better because it um your opponent has fewer cards, so your six one is more likely to survive. Sure. Hmm. Probably that's probably few too many steps but well the skeletal is also just good here because it forces them to discard right if it hits them they discard too so it's it leans right into yes well yeah that's definitely why it's there in the first place but i wonder if it has additional value by virtue of your opponent being less likely to answer it with so much other crazy stuff going on it's it's easy to forget that there is still a storm deck in modern with barrels and goblin electromancers that's never been taken out of the mix Uh, that also 5-0 there's also a jund list here Seeing a single copy of Croxa in the Jund list still, they're running ones or ones or twos. Um, people went after this card last week, as we noted on the cast. Um, I'm unconvinced that Croxa is going to be able to hold the line given this amount of play. So uh, strongly recommend people lean into the buy list. I saw that the buy list went pretty high this week. I think it was 1690 on CK in credit or something. If you got like eight to ten dollar copies, I think that's a fine exit you should take while you can. Um, entirely possible it ends up as a 20 to 30 dollar card but i don't really want to play that waiting game yeah i don't like croxa either it's not that i don't like it's it i just don't I know i don't I, I don't think the jund thing is enough and i don't want to bank on it ending up as a four of and standard and or pioneer to find out right there is just not it's not reliable enough i don't feel like it's yeah you know, just it's not where i'm interested in being i wonder if the rural decks are just essentially worse underworld breaches at this point you know, like as long as that card's legal, it seems like yeah. we're all not likely to be better. Yeah. Um, next list, the other five of the list I want to look at, there's a Sahili Rai list here. Same kind of thing. They got banned out of Pioneer, doing work in Modern still. Um, this is uh, Sahili Rai's got Teferi Time Raveler, Oath of Nyssa, Once Upon a Time, of course, so it could be impacted if that gets banned. Birds of Paradise, Felidar Guardians, Ice Fang Quaddles, Magus of the Moon, Noble Hierarch, Stoneforge Mystics, with the Stoneforge Mystic Package of Batter Skull and Sword of Fire and Ice, and an Uro Titan of Nature's Wrath. This deck looks fun. I'd love to play it if, uh, <laughs> I don't know if you still do, but at the once upon a time, but I, 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 this deck was 5-0-ing before Once Upon a Time was printed, so I suspect once some of the more broken decks in the format take a hit, it will probably still be viable. Yeah, it it's. I wonder if you're going to see more of these decks, uh, some of the decks that have faded away, come back to the forefront once the real good stuff gets banned. There's also a classic ad nauseum build here that doesn't look like the other one we talked about, um, where the main ingredient added this year is just four Thassa's Oracle. So that could be where the people that are running Thassa's Oracle's deck decks head uh, if it. If one of the other Oracle decks gets targeted in Modern, although I think that uh, that's unlikely uh, with the Pioneer Oracle decks being much more likely to take the hit uh, vis-a-vis maybe Dig Through Time. Right, right. Yeah, Dig Through Time is still high on my list of possibly, I think, depending on what format we're talking about, but if it's Pioneer, Dig Through Time is probably my pick for most likely to be banned. So way further down the list, we've got somebody running... Another Discord fo- discard focus list: three Liliana the Veil, three Dark Confidant, three Croxa Titan of Death's Hunger, notably in a completely different shell. 
four Lightning Skelemental, four Season Pyromancer, one Dreadbore, three Inquisition of Kozlek, four Ransack the Lab, four Thought Seize, three Unearth, three Fatal Push, four Lightning Bolt, and a Terminate. Um, I did tell people in our Discord a while back that I wanted to do something with Unearths and either Uro or Croxa. Because Unearth being printed into Modern seemed like it didn't really get enough attention, like being able to bring creatures back that cost three or less and get those come-in play abilities off the Elder Giants seems pretty sweet. So I'm happy to see somebody figured out something viable that was able to rack up a 5-0. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Play Croxa, let it die, Unearth it, get the same ability again. Your opponent has now discarded two cards and potentially lost some life. Yeah, Crux is still my, I think, less interesting than Uro and less powerful. Yep. But I'm just also not a big Rakdos fan, I guess. So maybe that's part of it. Yeah, I, and I don't, this is the kind of deck you would expect to start taking over the format, even if this player is able to snag a 5 Right, right, right. Um, this is a very curated list as well. So we're getting, we're seeing the breadth of the format. And I don't think there's any denying that Modern's breadth is extremely broad. There are so many quote-unquote viable archetypes. But if they were to cough up the uh, match uh, stats in terms of how decks line up against each other, I suspect we would see a much more narrow format. Yeah, well, that's the question, right? Like, what does this format actually look like? You know, we, we the, you know, are we just getting... We, we know we're getting the cherry-picked list. The question is, how cherry-picked are they? Also seeing some Gideon of the Trials show up in a modern list here. Three Gideon of the Trials, two Jace the Mind Sculptor, two Platinum Angel, four Snapcaster Mage, one Vendillion Click, four Madcap Experiment, four Serum Visions, three Chance for Glory, two Force of Negation, four Lightning Bolt, four Pact of Negation, two Path to Exile, and two Peak. So you're basically looking to uh, use Madcap Experiment to get to your Platinum Angel or, or your Gideon of the Trials, I suppose. Yeah. Did you see uh, the Pioneer decks are the, 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 I'm sorry, the Primeval Titan decks are making use of Ilzian Grove now? Yeah. Four of, in many cases. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's interesting how quickly that pivoted to being competitive. Titan decks are really good and they get to use Once Upon a Time too, right? So. Yeah. Will that's gross. A lot of decks are going to get hit if they knock that card out, and I'm very curious to see what's going to happen Monday. Uh, I mean, it really seems like they should. All right, so we got uh, we're running low on time here, so we got to move on to our fourth segment. Although there are uh, plenty more decks to talk about if we really wanted to. Um, let's see. For fourth segment, we want like to talk a little bit about cards. whether about uh, Saffron Olive's article: Are secret layers worth it? And in which Saff. Uh, basically went through and took a look at all the releases so far, what people paid for them up front, and what they uh, are worth today. So a couple things of note. First of all, all the way along here, the secret layers have come with uh, stained glass planeswalkers from War of the Spark. The lowest uh, price point on any of those, last I checked, was somewhere around $5 or so. And I think the Liliana Dreadhorde General, if I'm not mistaken, is the most expensive one right now. And last I checked, that one was over $80. Let me just bring up this spreadsheet I put together for the 
pro traders um, outlining uh, what the the price points were. It's a nice little treat for people who bought that particular secret layer. Yeah. So now I guess I guess the list I pulled together was actually uh, for the forthcoming release that's coming for International Women's Day. I put together a list of all the female planeswalkers looking at TCG near mint market and noted that of the 17 female planeswalkers that were possible, uh, all but four of them were worth $10 or more. And Liliana was at about 110, Narset at 78, Chandra at 60, Nisa at 50. I think these have slid a little since then, but they're still relatively accurate. And the average for the female planeswalkers that are likely to be packed into that set uh, is $29. So you're getting $29 in additional value, even if you believe that will come down 50% in the interim, then you're still getting $20 in additional value on average. Um, SAF declined to put uh, a calculation around these into the set, uh, into his article, because he didn't want to do the math on, uh, well, couldn't 100% accurately do the math on which planeswalkers came in which secret layers, but more to the point, what if any given secret layer could have had one or more, we don't know 100% whether they were all equal chance of inclusion, or whether, for instance, the uncommon ones showed up more than the mythics. As far as I can tell, I think they were equal um, within whatever logic was used to include them in the first place. So for instance, in the women's one, I would guess that you have an equal chance at any of the female planeswalkers. But that remains to be seen, if that's true. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't fault Seth for choosing not to put those calculations into the article because it seems challenging to try and get an accurate number. And if people are expecting your information to be reliable in that regards, I don't want to be responsible if I'm wrong. So I like saying this is the face value of the product and then there is some unknown additional value from the planeswalkers that could be significant or might be irrelevant. Yeah, and he more or less agreed with you and took that took that stance. Although I think what I would have done in he showed a cost and a current value. I think at minimum you should be showing like for instance for foil snow covered basics the cost was $30. He shows current value at 66. I would put that at 66 plus 5 plus because it's not 66, it's at least 71 and could have been higher. Yeah, I guess it's uh, to me, it's always worth being conservative in those types of discussions. I feel like you do your readership um, more of a favor in that regard, but uh, I understand the, the debate, the discussion. Okay, so one of the other things Seth was looking at was he tried to ballpark uh, total number of copies produced. Um, he said, one last consideration is the long-term value of the cards in the secret layer drops. Even if the value is only medium today, might these cards end up being extremely valuable in the future? My guess here is no. While I do think that secret layer cards, especially those that are popular in Commander, can slowly increase in price, expecting secret layer cards to end up having value similar to Masterpieces just isn't realistic. While Wizards doesn't hold, release hard numbers, some data mining for the recent Theros Gods drop suggested that around 40,000 of the five drop sets were sold which seems fairly realistic compared to the sales of some past special products like Mythic Edition, whose sales numbers were public thanks to eBay. 
Add in some number, sales of individual drops, and let's estimate that there might be somewhere around 50,000 of each individual secret layer god in existence. I call all of that into question. Um, <laughs> 50, 40 or 50,000 seems really, really high to me. Um, because they that, that first of all, that doesn't compare to the Mythic Editions. We, at an earlier juncture, figured out that the Mythic Editions were probably somewhere between... 10 and 20,000 copies, and I was leaning more towards the low side. Um, 40 to 50 seems real, real high. And we're, if secret layer drops have been at that level, you would expect to see a lot more inventory in the marketplace, and we just don't. Like, the most of the drops... My guess is that drops are pre-printed at 10,000 copies. And if they sell sell more, they ship more. I, I think 10,000 is a very good starting place, especially because it lines up with the discussions that we've had elsewhere about other premium, you know, ultra premium products. So, you know, it's a nice round number for printing. Seems like a good place to work from. Now, even if I'm right about 10,000 or... Let's say a little more conservatively, it's twenty thousand, and I was right about that. That doesn't mean there's not forty or fifty because you can still oversell. We know that these are sold like that. They whatever they put aside, as we said earlier, they ship those more or less right away. And then you wait a while. They go back to the presses and they print the additionals that they sold because they are, in essence, print to demand. They haven't closed off any of these yet, other than. Uh, via time they've never actually hit a max where they said we sold too many of these and even though we said it was going to be available till tuesday at midnight we're sold out so they are printing to demand so it's he's right in the sense that it's possible they could be selling that that many and i'm assuming that by data mining he means that they got some people to report as we have done in our discord um what their order numbers were and that they established that but the the biggest gap between two order numbers might have been that big now the problem with that is one of the standard things that could be done in e-commerce is to obfuscate the total number of units sold by skipping order numbers along the way potentially in big blocks so even if we establish that we know there was an order number 10,000 and there was later an order number 60,000 you don't necessarily know that you have 50,000 orders on that basis mm -hmm. so going back to your point about being as conservative as possible you can still be um you know maybe you operate from this perspective of fifty thousand copies of each of these gods in the market and go from there he then tried to compare that to the total number of copies of original heliod god of the sun and came up with a number uh, of Theros booster boxes printed back in 2014 uh, that said, like, you would have to sell $225 million worth of Theros to have the same number of copies. And then said, nah, that's too high. Uh, I think he's right about that. I'm pretty sure that reported revenue for Magic Total, including all print and Magic Online back in 2014, 13 uh, was something like 330 million or something. So 
a fall set should probably be something like 35 to 40% of the total revenue, 30 to 35, 30, 30 to 40%, surely. So if you had 329 million sold for the brand as a whole, then you should be able to realistically... You're looking at at least 100 million, 130 million? Yeah, something like that. So about half what is noted. So if he's right about the total number of units sold, then these add double the number of foil, Heliod, uh, God of the Sun, as existed in the wild before. So maybe there's now triple what there once was. I I suspect it didn't sell 50,000 units. I suspect it sold maybe max 20,000 units. So conservatively, you can expect that there are triple the number of gods now, god foils now. And if you are more liberal about it, and you have lower numbers like I tend to believe in, then you have something like a doubling of the foil heliods. However, really aren't seeing the, that many copies in the market if that's the case. I mean, given well, that, that these are direct to market, either the absorption rate amongst players, the attrition rate of these these copies would have to be extremely high, or the and or the number of vendors that invested in it would be, have to be extremely low. Or, again, we're waiting on a big uh, catch-up set of shipments for the stuff past the first ten or 20,000, which, as with the rats, could be true. Could be that in six weeks we'll have a, just a flood of these gods and the market will drop out on them. So we won't really have a sense of it for sure till we get a little further down the road. Um going to be worth circling back on both the rats and the gods to get a sense of whether the follow-on shipments seemed like they made a big difference in the market. So I'm going to take a little snapshot today of the total number of units uh, posted on TCG for each of these cards, affected cards, and then we'll compare once we know we're out the other side of it. And if we don't, if we see a huge expansion of the available inventory, then we'll know where we stand. I, oh God, I had something I was going to tell you and now I've lost my train of thought. Uh, yes. I, okay. The secret layers for the gods seem like they would be a little bit differently than, behave a little differently than the other secret layers. And that I don't, I would, I could see somebody buying the full set of the gods and just stashing them all. Whereas I don't think that's going to happen for the other secret layers. So it's the type of thing where like, oh, I'm just going to have one of each of the gods and like, I'm okay with that versus like, oh, I've got these, but I'm not going to keep, you know, this group of cards or this individual card type of thing. So it seems like they might be a little less liquid than the other secret layers um, based on just partly based on just anecdotal evidence of reading people who bought them on Twitter saying they bought the full set and they were keeping them. I can believe that secret layers have relatively high attrition compared to, say, cards that come out of booster boxes because of the mechanics of vendor access. First of all, I think vendors are turned off by the implied, the uh, non-guaranteed margins of secret layers. If a secret layer doubles up, then they should have bought some. They should have bought lots. If it stays within, you know, 25 or 30%, then there's not enough margin for them to bother. They're not looking to break even after time spent in fees. Right. So that certainly contributes and could mean that secret layers just generally have very high attrition rates. There's also the fact that the secret layers are only available for a few days. 
that may, I, I said right up front when they announced them, that's going to make a big difference. Because anything that's really hot and comes out of a secret layer is going to go up over time because there's no restocking potential at all. What, what, right. Other than however many uh, units they produce. So if Seth is right and they printed 50,000, that's actually quite a lot. Um, and the, that should ref, should suggest that they will be slow gainers. But if the number is much lower, 10 to 20,000 for some of these, as I suspect things like the snow-covered Eldraine lands or the cats might have been, then those that ex- helps explain why those ones have done so well. And in fact, that is what we've seen. Like he he flags some of the what I would have thought would be the most unlikely secret layers when they were announced to be big gainers, as in fact being the biggest deal. I did not think that the Winter Wonderland Eldraine lands would matter when they were announced because we knew Pioneer was supplanting modern interest at that time announced in October and these came out in November. So, and snow covered basics don't do anything in pioneer. So I figured these would be a flop, but they're one of the best EVs out of any of them. They're currently worth about 66 plus at least a $5 planeswalker. So on average, probably something closer to 76 over 30 minus fees. You got to double up. It, it really draws to a point that the best value is probably is the, is the secret layers that nobody wanted, uh, which I mean, when is is makes sense, right? Because they're the limited release; it doesn't have time to catch back up. Um, you know, there's that single purchasing period, so it's like if it turns out that there was one that was ordered way less, it's going to be much more expensive a couple of weeks later. So the hard part is buying identifying the secret layer that nobody wants and also someone will want, but they don't want that on that day. Like the foil basics or the, what was the other one? The, the cats or something? went from like 40 to probably $90 in value now. Um, well, yeah. we talked about this a bit off cast and I said something to the effect of, it's not that you want the secret layer nobody wants. It's the, you want the secret layer that vendors and speculators think is garbage. And don't believe anybody will want, but they're wrong. Like you and I thought cats were dumb. We're not into it. We didn't buy any. Well, I did it. I bought them in a bundle and made money, but I didn't go out of my way to buy extras of it. Um, And we just don't understand the market. There are, in fact, tons of people who love cats and lots of people, casuals that are into cat cards and are into these cutesy uh, secret layer versions. And they may just not have been as in tune with the availability of Secret Layer that particular week when it was available. So there's fairly decent oversized trailing demand versus how many were snatched up. And I think that if you can subvert expectations for vendors and speculators, that's your sweet spot because the people that go deep on those have done very well. The Rats is pretty similar. It's currently going for about it's probably worth 85 to 90 and the rat's price was 40. I also bought none of those. Um, whereas the one that I thought was going to be the most important was the five color legends. Uh, one from the original set. That's the only one I bought extras of. I think I got six of them because I'm hunting foil stained glass to fairies and the like in that set. I wasn't really too worried about what the, three cards included were that was reaper king sliver overlord and the ur dragon that one was just for the three cards included cost 40 dollars, and they're basically still just worth 40 dollars. 
Now, that's funny that you were buying a secret layer with no intention of buying of any of the cards that were actually in. The well, I figured layer. like that it was about what we're seeing for it. I assumed that the cards would be worth about forty dollars, and then whatever planeswalkers you got would just be bonus. So if you get say four of those planeswalkers are say five to ten dollars, and then one of them is worth thirty, and then you get hit a Teferi or something, then you're up significantly. You're doing just fine. Now you. That's a lottery yeah. ticket. You can still get blown out there. Lots of people have. Um, but you can also, like somebody showed me the other day, pulling like Chandra and Liliana um, out of one of their recent secret layers and like just blowing expectations out of the water. They can uh, see. The other thing is Card Kingdom's buy list has been very generous on these for the reasons we outlined before. Card Kingdom probably isn't buying them because the margin doesn't look great up front. They'd rather just get them and work a buy list margin down the road. But because they don't have any direct access to them except via the buy list, their buy lists are quite generous. And and they have been, and they will probably continue to be. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the gist of it was that in the end, in, in Saf's estimation, and I think his logic was sound for the most part, the secret layers are either break-even, plus you get a stained glass planeswalker, or... They are, you know, anywhere from a ten percent plus ten percent to plus a hundred percent, and you get a stained glass planeswalker. Now, one of the questions is, how long are the stained glass planeswalkers going to be included? My guess, given what we've seen so far, is that it's either the first six months of this year or it's the first twelve. Like it's either half of twenty twenty or it's all of twenty twenty, and then they'll switch to something else. Do you think there will always be something else? I could see them dropping the stained glass planeswalkers after six months and using them as an as sort of a juice to get people into buying secret layers and then slowly take away that. Yeah, Saf made bonus. the same point. Uh, I, I, sus- I think that if you've been giving bonus for a long time, like I think they could have done that just the first time and then dropped it. But I think it's harder the longer it goes on. Because if you say drop it in September, but you've been doing the stained glass planeswalkers all year and you don't give replace it with something else then people are just going to be like they used to be worth it they're not worth it now like i don't think this is going to be an addiction yeah like this is going to be most of a lot of the people buying these are very carefully watching the value on each given drop and now that we have more information about like well maybe if they're if people think they suck and they're casual focused we should actually be buying them that's going to factor into how they sell in the future (laughs) but this i think it will be tough for them to walk back adding a secret bonus one of the reasons I think the secret bonus is so great is that it doesn't really add a lot of cost on their end, but it prevents us from blanket, like it pre- pre- prevents content producers, both mainstream and MTG finance related, from cutting these releases off at the knees and saying they're not worth it. Because because if you don't know yeah. what's included till like pretty much the last second, it's going to be hard to evaluate what what you can buy so i think it behooves them to continue with secret bonuses they just won't be stained glass planeswalkers forever so final point on this topic i think the stained glass planeswalkers therefore since they've been ongoing are almost certainly a sell because except for a few of the very best of them because a lot of the ones that are propped up by the fact that they haven't been printed very many times yet will probably be included in further ones so for instance all the female planeswalkers are the most likely inclusions for the International Women's Day edition and probably the Thalia release. And on that basis, 
the ones that are say sitting at 10 could get knocked down to seven or six or five or whatever. And I, I think no time like the present to be selling most of the stained glass walkers that are only inflated in price based on lack of supply as opposed to huge demand. I'm not, yeah. gonna, if I get it to ferry, I'm not going to be in a rush to flip it, but otherwise. So, okay. Uh, in the interest of time, I think uh, we probably should move on. Your second point this second the second point this week is regarding a wired article that is forthcoming most likely uh, for which you had uh, an interview with a journalist and it relates to some of the discussions involving the pioneer information leak. Um, so how do what exactly is it that you would like us to address here? Well, I think the first point is just that there is a seems like a big article coming from Wired on the state of the magic economy and probably uh, getting a bit into the weeds on MTG Finance and all of the drama and shenanigans that goes on. The What all will be covered, I don't have an excellent viewpoint on because I'm only one of many people that were interviewed. Um, but it has been interesting to me to see how this has... Uh, my my guess as to what this was going to be has shifted. When I was first interviewed like a month ago, um, and this is by a staff writer at Wired that has a pretty good record um, of covering, you know, producing strong uh, journalism as pertains to the gaming industry, um, including the article last year that was in heavy circulation, not for Wired, but for another publication that was talking about how uh, gaming brands in, in far, falsely in inflated their uh, Twitch views, which was something that I was fully in agreement with and happy to see come out since I had been yelling about it for months before she wrote the article. Um, so when I was first interviewed, I got the impression that this might be kind of a fluff piece for Wired where it would show up as like three or four paragraphs towards the front of the magazine, just kind of on the premise of, hey, the magic economy is still going strong 30 years later or something. But now, having been interviewed for twice two different sittings and uh, with a more aggressive angle on the second sitting, it seems much more likely that this is about is kind of an investigative journalism piece that's going to expose um, a variety of angles as pertains to the magic economy. Um, one of the angles that's specific to MGG Price and myself in particular was a line of questioning that investigated when we actually knew about Pioneer and what the impact on the magic economy was of us knowing uh, that early. Um, most of which we covered already on uh, episode 192, I believe, where we spent like 90 minutes uh, talking about uh, the Pioneer leaks and my interactions with Matt Sperling and his subsequent posting of YouTube videos and so forth. But I am going to get caught out here on one particular point. You and I twice discussed on on cast episode 192 and i reinforced on social media that the source of the pioneer leak as we understood it where we got our information from was anonymous via email and that was not true that was me deliberately obfuscating where my source came from because that's what i do with sources if they are not primary and i'm supposed to be protecting them so sperling caught me out there she's probably going to call me to task on it and it is what it is. <laughs> well, I think that uh, you people 
some people may be inclined to give you a hard time about claiming that it was a anonymous source when it was in fact not anonymous you you know it was somebody that you knew in discord uh which i think is you know it's fair to give you a hard time about it but at the same time i think that if you have someone giving you that type of information you don't want to blow them in um i don't you know i know enough to know that it doesn't really change the nature of the story at all here uh whether it's someone anonymous or someone that we had you know had been hanging around the discord well, but i i i respect if people are going to be pissed about it's it. interesting because i went back and read through a lot of the twitter debate that surrounded this and most people that were trying to drive through to what who my source was were coming from two different angles one was i'm lying about the source and they are primary because they were looking to prove that we were actually the people that were buying up well the mgg price pro traders were buying up pioneer cards weeks in advance the good news is that the information that will be exposed here will prove this that was definitely not the case um because once you know she apparently the writer has screenshots of my conversations with the pro trader member that gave us information that member is not a primary source they overheard it at an event somewhere in europe so whoever their their source was could get burned here because they've been loose with they've been loose on their own but we didn't burn them we did what we were supposed to do the what will come out is that what we everything else we said was true. We knew about this two or three days ahead of time. We told our members two days ahead of time. We were only 80% sure because we didn't ever talk to the primary source at all. We just had this hearsay that this guy had overheard this person say, such and such is happening. Be ready. And, you know, as it turns out, that person has later decided they, you know, our source has later decided they want to take credit for it and, put their own source at risk which is you know up to them and nothing to do with us uh the but i'm happy to be in a position ultimately where when this all comes out in the wired article it's going to be clear that definitely somebody else like other people knew way ahead of us uh and that the two pieces of information we acted upon were that a week earlier the wpn uh software had included a new format named pioneer and then we got this person coming in from Europe telling us, hey, I heard such and such from an acquaintance or friend of mine who waltzed by my table and dropped this in intel on my lap and check this out. So we're fine with all that. I mean, we're, we're going we're to put up a piece just reiterating what I've said many times in terms of what our policies are. We don't deal with primary sources. We report them. The Wired article may also touch on the Nickel Bolas that I knew about months ahead of time with, with relation to War of the Spark, but that's something that we announced publicly and and that we dealt with in the way that we are supposed to be dealing with primary sources, which is reporting them to wizards so they can nip those in the bud wherever possible. And uh, I'm not super thrilled to give Matt Sperling the ammunition to come back and call me a liar, but... <laughs> I would I, I protected a source, I would protect a source again as long as the source is in position to deserve protecting. Sperling's commentary at the time was excessively aggressive. Uh, and even if it was somebody who had that we had spoken to, it was somebody, even if the person we had spoken to was someone that had been in the Discord for a while and was anonymous, again, it doesn't change the dynamic 
of the conversation that was had and the information. And uh, again, I, I, I listened to some of our conversation from that earlier podcast and I like Sperling. Uh, at least I did. I thought that his content, his articles were worth reading, but man, that particular treatment was excessive to the point of uh, what's the term I'm looking for. Um some sort of excited, exciting journalism. So yeah, it was sensationalism. And, and, and a heavy dose of bias by the time he was done. The And the thing is, it didn't really get to the heart of the matter. If you assume that we are the source of all of this, you are missing the point. And go back to episode 192, listen <laughs> to the 90 minutes. We already dealt with this in great detail. So no, no need to retread hallowed ground. But I am very curious given the kinds of conversations that the journalist had with me as to what else is going to be uncovered. This could be a fascinating article, and I'm sure we will have plenty to say about it when it comes out. Um, yeah. yeah. I want to read it just as much as the rest of you. I'm just hoping my name appears in it so that I can frame it and put well, it on all, my That wall. all depends if she only nails us to the wall for the pi- Pioneer Intel leak early or decides to connect a whole bunch of other dots and try to construct a MTG finances charlatans type perspective. If she ends up like, you know, putting the label on us, like we're some kind of know nothings that can only make money if we have the Intel, um, she'll be both a wrong and B, uh, but that B could have an impact um, because there are so many people that are, either on the fence or negative about MTG finance in general. And if they don't realize that most of what we do is just help players make and save a little money playing magic, the gathering, then they'll be all too happy to embrace a big headline that points in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. I want to go to bed. So let's wrap this up. Where can our listeners find you, James? You guys can find me on Twitter at MGG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on MGGPrice.com. And I am Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N, and I show up here on this podcast. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MGGPrice.com Pro Trader service for just $7.99 a month or $79.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast that is the end of episode 209 the very first episode of year five Woo. so uh good time as always and i will see you again next week james thank you travis we'll see you all next week on another episode of mtg fast finance <laughs>